How are you blessed in your life? How do you release heaven's blessing? By loving sacrificially, unselfishly, humbly, without any thought of personal gain, personal fulfillment, personal satisfaction, but completely committed to the sheer well-being, joy, satisfaction, fulfillment, and necessity of somebody else. Welcome to Grace To You with John MacArthur. I'm your host, Phil Johnson. Today, John's going to mix things up a bit. Instead of walking you verse by verse through a passage of Scripture, he's going to field questions from his congregation about the Bible and the Christian life, maybe even some questions you've wrestled with as you've studied God's Word. Questions like, what parts of the gospel do you need to believe in order to be saved? Do you need to believe in the Trinity? And should children take communion if they're not baptized? Those are just a few of the practical issues John's going to look at. So let's get started. You're going to hear a member of Grace Community Church ask a question, and then John will respond. My question is concerning the uh, death of Christ. And I know that the, the uh, word faith people have, uh, are teaching a very... Uh, uh, erroneous uh, teaching on the death of Christ and uh, going to hell and being born again and so forth. But it seems like uh, some sound teachers are denying the spiritual death of Christ along, you know, to kind of uh, dispute what the word faith people are saying. And I'd like you, if you would, to uh, uh, answer the question did Christ die spiritually on the cross? And <clears throat> what are some of the uh, scriptural texts in regard to that? Well, spiritual death is usually defined as separation from God. And in that sense, I would say, yes, Christ did die spiritually. We know He died physically. I mean, that's obvious because they crucified Him and He yielded up His spirit, right? And they ran a spear into his side, and out came uh, the pericardial fluid mixed with blood, which indicated probably that his heart had burst, and so we know he died physically. What beyond that he experienced was a separation from God. And I believe in that sense there was a spiritual alienation. There was a spiritual death. Spiritual death is alienation from God. And Jesus articulated that when He said, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? And I think in, in the experience of bearing sin in His own body, literally, Paul says, being made sin for us, the separation occurred. And so I think there was a spiritual element to His death. Now, obviously, his nature was not defiled, okay? And that's, that's, the, that's the caveat that you have to place there. While he bore the sins of many, he himself never became a sinner. That's the mystery of it. He was made sin in the sense that all our sin was placed upon him but he himself was not culpable, so that his death was a voluntary substitutionary death and not one for his own iniquity. And that's where the word faith people just completely 
misrepresent the death of Christ. They have Christ dying on the cross as a sinner, going to hell, and they're suffering punishment for his sins and then being born again and coming back to the world uh, on his resurrection morning. Um, but you're right, in disputing that, we cannot dispute the reality that Christ was made sin, and in being completely covered with sin, He was alienated from God, which is the essence of what spiritual death is. Uh, besides the reference in Matthew, uh, do you have any other scripture that would talk about that separation? I know in Psalm 22, that's a that's Well, a yeah, that's because that. that's where he drew that right. from, from Psalm 22. Um, and just off the top of my head, I'm trying to uh, remember if there's any specific one. Uh, my mind is drawn to Colossians chapter 2, um, where it says that the certificate of debt verse 14, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, which was the accumulated sin, the debt that we had accrued against God, He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And I think, again, what this is saying is that the whole body of sin was placed upon Christ and nailed with Him there. And I think it's, it's just inherent in that, that there will be an alienation from God as He bears this sin. Another text that comes to mind is um, in Hebrews where we see um, Christ depicted as the scapegoat, as the one who has to suffer, you remember, outside the camp. You remember the scapegoat? The high priest would put his sins on the scapegoat and then he would be taken outside the camp indicating that sin was taken away. Christ is the scapegoat. He suffers without the camp. And there again you have the same concept of alienation where he is sent out into the wilderness bearing sin. But I, I can't just off the top of my head think of any other specific statement with that regard. Do you have any in mind? Well, the verse in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 18. Uh, for Christ also hath suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And then it says, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And I'm wondering, that quickened by the Spirit, is that, what is, what is that? No, mean? no, what I, what I think that means, and, I, and what I, I think you have to, have to hold there, and it's why I wouldn't refer this verse particularly to this issue. I, I think it simply means he was, he was dead physically, but he was alive in his spirit. In other words, that would be true of, of anybody who dies, right? I mean, you can kill the body, but you can't kill the soul. And I think that's what it means, that his body was killed, but his soul did not go out of existence. So when we talk about spiritual death, we're not talking about someone's soul going out of existence. And it tells us there that being alive in the spirit, he then went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison. It is true that he did go to the abode of demons, but he didn't go there to suffer. He went there to preach. So all that's saying is that while his body was dead, the real Christ was still alive. Still alive. Okay. That doesn't speak of the alienation that he experienced on the cross in bearing sin. Okay. 
Okay. Thank you. Good question. Thank you. Recently, a friend and I had some discussions concerning the uh, amount of information that is needed for salvation. We were discussing the, uh, the heathen in Africa question. And uh, his point was that uh, a person could actually be saved without actually having the name of Jesus Christ mentioned or having the gospel, like the word of God, read to him or preached to him because God could actually speak to that person and they would uh, be saved much the same way as Abraham was saved in Romans chapter 4 where Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as uh, his righteousness. And I disagreed with him and I said, I think, no, because God has given the word that that is what needs to be brought to them. And I brought to him Romans 10, that uh, sure. the preacher needs to come. And so we come to you at, at this point. I think you're exactly right. In the first place, Abraham was, was deemed to be saved because he believed the revealed Word of God, not because of some private conversation. Any Old Testament saint could be said to be saved or in faith, believing God, when he believed all that God had revealed at that point. And it wasn't just all that God had revealed to him, but all that God had disclosed about himself. And there obviously is a saving amount of truth. Abraham could not have been saved simply if he'd have known God was a creator. He had to know God was a savior. He had to understand his sin, and it was abundantly clear, even in the, in the early chapters of Genesis, wasn't it, that God had a standard of righteousness and that God would judge one who violated that standard? We see that with Adam and Eve, that God instituted symbols of the sacrifice of His Son early on in the proper offering that Abel brought. So all of that, and you can go back into the Old Testament and you can see many, many indications that there was a full knowledge that God was a God of righteousness and wrath and that men were sinners and that God had provided an atonement and that there was to be a provision for sin and if men would believe all that God had revealed about that up to a given time, that God would account that as faith and grant them salvation. When you come to the New Testament, it is unequivocal in the New Testament, once the New Testament has been revealed that the gospel must be understood and believed. Uh, nothing short of that. Verse 30 of, of uh, Acts 17, therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because He's fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. In other words, there was a time when God was patient and tolerant, but now He's commanding all men to repent, and the whole heart and soul of that repentance message is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, faith comes by hearing a speech about Christ. This is not true. Uh, there, it is not possible to become a believer apart from understanding the gospel. Now, whether you know the name Jesus or the name Christ, or the name Lord Jesus Christ, or part of that, or none of that, 
you certainly would have to understand that He was God in human flesh and was the perfect substitute for sin who paid the penalty for your sin and believe in His death and resurrection. And that basically has to be communicated from, say, a missionary or another person. It is conceivable. It is conceivable that God could put that in the heart of an individual. Oh. It is possible that God could do that. I don't want to say that God could not do that. Okay. Uh, it, is, it is conceivable that, that, that He has chosen people somewhere that He'll have to reach like that, but it is more reasonable to assume that He knows where His elect are and He will take to them someone to preach the truth. I mean, we don't want to say that God is capable of electing and redeeming. He just can't figure out how to get the Word to Him. So it, you know what I'm saying. But I don't want to say that there couldn't be a situation where God could not reveal Himself in the heart because it is conceivable that He could do that. It wouldn't be certainly for me to say that God could never do that. He could disclose the gospel um, supernaturally to someone if He chose to do that. And that may be the case. I don't know. But to say that that's a norm, no, and to say that they don't have to hear the gospel is wrong. I see. Okay? Good. Thanks. There's more that could be said about that, but maybe that kind of gets you going on the right path. Um, you see, that's, that leans in a, in a very disastrous direction because now you're going to dis dispossess people of the responsibility to go. And now you're going to want to let anybody who believes basically anything in. And look, um, the gospel, the, the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, don't even get close to that. They are way in the other direction, saying there are a lot of people who know all the right stuff and aren't even saved. To say nothing of people who would be saved and don't know anything. I mean, that's so far away that the warnings of Scripture are directed at people who know but whose faith is not saving faith. You understand what I'm saying there? Uh, it's not the other way. He doesn't say, well, you know, if anybody's got some kind of a general idea about what's going on, they're in. <laughs> not hardly. Many will say unto me, Lord, Lord, and not enter in. What about the people who don't even know what to say? What chance have they? Okay. Hi, John. Could you talk about children and communion, and should they wait till they're baptized to take communion? That's a good question. I, I think it's, it's so hard to know uh, specifically in the life of a child when they reach the age when genuine salvation occurs. I mean, I watched my own for children growing up, never did they rebel against Christ. At what point was their childlike faith saving faith? I don't know. But as soon as they wanted to participate, we were willing to let them. And I think they need to come to a certain level. I remember the first time my father had a conversation with me about it. He's reminded me several times, and he said, we're going to the Lord's Supper tonight, and we want you to come, and it'll be your first time. And I said, well, I hope they don't have peas. And his his basic response was, I think we'll wait a while. <laughs> so well, what, what, what I'm trying to say is 
that there, there may be an appropriate time to start letting a child participate when they understand, I think it can be instructive. And um, I don't think that, uh, they, that you should become necessarily legalistic and say, you know, baptism is the entree into that. I think it can be instructive at a time when children understand its meaning and they believe in their hearts that they believe. I mean, it would be hard to say to, a, say, a seven or eight-year-old who says, I love Jesus and I've asked Him into my heart, well, I'm not sure this is really true and we don't know whether we ought to let you do this. If it's their good intention to honor Christ and they understand that we're remembering His death and resurrection, then I think the intent of their heart is consistent with the intent of God in the service that that's, a, that's good instruction, and then they'll reach a point at some juncture um, when that saving faith is real and that service has its full meaning to them. Okay? Thank you. Good. Thank you. Yes? If Adam and Eve were the first two people... Wait a minute. What Was that again? If Adam and Eve were the first two people... How did we get so many racials? How, how do we get so many races? Oh, yeah. that's a good question. This is a very complex question, but let's go at it another way. The races that we experience today didn't really come from Adam and Eve. You know why? Because everybody on the face of the earth got drowned except for Noah and his three sons and their wives. So all the races came from Noah and Mrs. Noah and the three, three little junior Noahs. Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and uh, they were all, you remember, rescued in the flood and they came back and began to populate the earth. They obviously through the years adapted themselves to their area. They of course began to develop and all the races eventually came. But uh, apart from what might be the scientific and historical explanation is the statement of Acts 17 where it says, the God who made the world and all things in it since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither is He served by human hands, as though He have need of anything. He made from one every nation." So that's the best answer. Acts 17, verse 26, God from Noah and Mrs. Noah and Shem, Ham, and Japheth created the nations. Now one major component in that happened at the Tower of Babel, of course, where God scattered all the nations all over the face of the earth and changed their languages. So the best answer is right there in Acts 17, God did it. And God sort of tweaked their ears and tweaked their eyes and their nose and their color of their skin and all those genetic unique things in His creative power through the process of providential genetics to create all the different races. Okay? Hi, John. My name is Stephen. And I was wondering if you could articulate for me your own personal theology. I know that you came from a dispensational background. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could talk about kind of like the history of your studying the Bible and being confronted with covenant theology and how you've sort of come to the conclusions you've come to and when that happened. Well, oh, yeah. let's see. <laughs> I was born at a very early age. And. Uh, <laughs> Fortunately, he was born near my mother, and uh, let's see, what else? No, um, I was raised in a dispensational environment, there's no question. Um, people used to say of me that uh, his hope is built on nothing less than Schofield's Notes and Moody Press. And uh, 
I, I sort of grew up in that dispensational environment, but as I got into seminary, I, I began to uh, test some of those things, and uh, I have been perhaps aptly designated as a leaky dispensationalist. Or the Reformed people who want to claim me as Reformed say I'm, I'm a Reformed but confused. Um, <laughs> but here's my dispensationalism, okay? I'll give it to you in one sentence. There's a difference between the church and Israel, period. If you understand that, you understand the essence of what I believe is a legitimate biblical dispensationalism. That permits a kingdom, that demands a kingdom, and that makes you premillennial. Because if you believe there's a distinction between Israel and the church, then the church is not Israel. And if the church is not Israel, the promises of a kingdom to Israel have to come to pass, and that's why you have to have a kingdom. I came to understand that more narrow definition of dispensationalism uh, while in seminary, at least to begin to understand it and have and found that uh, my study of Scripture over the last uh, 30 years has yielded an affirmation that that is, in fact, correct. At the same time, in seminary, I began to be exposed to reading among um, more Reformed theologians and found myself uh, drawn uh, toward uh, carefully examining the Scripture. And over the years of exegeting the Scripture, it has again yielded to me a Reformed theology but it is the byproduct of exegesis. I've always said a man has no right to claim a theology if he's not an exegete because how can you know what the whole is if you can't interpret the parts? So it's been a process. I, I was convinced of it when I started, and I'm more convinced of it now as I've gone through the text. I was convinced of it when I started because I, uh, I read so many noble men who held that view. It was more at that point hero worship, and now it's become my own. Okay? That's squeezing it. Okay? Okay, one final question. Thank you. Yes, uh, a Mormon asked me this question a number of years ago, and uh, through the years here at church, I've asked a number of people this question. There seems to be a divided uh, opinion on it, and I wanted to get your opinion. Sure. So uh, people ask, she asked me, it was a Mormon lady, asked me when I was witnessing to her, do you have to believe in the Trinity to become a Christian? And I didn't know how to answer at the time. Yeah. I would answer yes. Um, if you don't believe in the Trinity, then you don't understand who God is. You may say the word God, but you don't understand His nature. Secondly, you couldn't possibly understand who Christ is. I know what I'm saying when I say that. It's going to not only impact people that you may have witnessed to, but there are even people who believe in a kind of modalism uh, where God is God for a while, and then He gets to be Christ for a while, and He gets to be the Holy Spirit for a while, but He's never all three at the same time. It is my conviction that true salvation is built upon an understanding of the deity of Jesus Christ, that He is both God, fully God, and that God at the same time is fully God, and that that's the whole point of what He did in the Gospels. I mean, Jesus was never satisfied with having people accept Him as anything other than God. Not just God the Son, but God what? The Father. And I think that was the whole thing that he was demonstrating, was the Trinitarian nature of God. So I think not to understand the Trinity is not to understand who God is, and it's not to understand who Christ is, and therefore it's not to understand the gospel properly. The same question arises. Uh, about the virgin birth. I would say a person could become a Christian if they didn't know about the virgin birth because they would assume that Jesus Christ must have had a unique birth if He was both God and man, right? But if someone says, I would deny the virgin birth, then all you've got is a man. 
You've got something less than the incarnate God. It is conceivable that somebody would say, no, he wasn't born of a virgin, he was born of Joseph and Mary, and God just infused the Lagos spirit into him, and it could get a little confused that way. But basically, uh, I think you need to believe that God is expressed fully in Christ and yet exists as God, and that the Spirit of God was doing the work through Christ. That's what he said, and anything less than that. He said, if you don't see the Spirit working in me, what is that? Blasphemy. So I think the Trinity is inherent to the gospel understanding. Thank Good you. question. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thanks for a great evening. Go with us now to strengthen us to serve you, we pray in our Savior's name. Amen. That's Grace to You with John MacArthur, Chancellor of the Masters University and Seminary. The format was a bit different today. You not only heard from John, you also heard from the Congregation of Grace Community Church during a helpful question and answer session. And you know, John, one of the benefits of a Q&A session like today's is it shows just how comprehensive and how thoroughly sufficient Scripture is. Yes, the Bible raises a lot of questions, but it also answers them. And more important, it has the power to transform us. Yeah, I enjoy the Q&A sessions, and I feel comfortable doing it because of the fact that all the answers are in the one book. So I, I might not be able to answer philosophical questions because I would have to be widely read to understand philosophy, but when it comes to biblical questions, having spent my life in, in the Bible, I know essentially what God's Word says about most people's questions. Uh, the point of writing the MacArthur Study Bible Notes, well, now, what, 25 years ago, was to put the answers in the Bible so that people don't need to ask the questions. Right. They ask them anyway, though. <laughs> well, they always want to go beyond what—you give an answer in the notes in the MacArthur Study Bible, and that's fine as far as it goes, but that leads to other questions, right. and that's, that's great. I love that as well. But a good place to start with all your questions, and if you're, if you're reading the Bible, you will have questions. A great place to start getting answers is with the copy of the MacArthur Study Bible. There are 25,000 footnotes on every single page explaining what you're reading in the Scripture, giving you background, culture, geography, language. That all is part of getting to the meaning of the text, explaining hard-to-understand passages and all those kinds of things. So you need to have a copy of the MacArthur Study Bible. It comes in the New American Standard, which I use, the New King James, the ESV. It's available in Spanish, German, French, Russian, Chinese, Italian, Arabic, Portuguese, and of course, great prices, as always, from grace to you. Get a copy of the MacArthur Study Bible, and you'll have the notes that explain the meaning of the Bible, and so many of your questions will be answered. Yes, they will. Thanks, John. And friend, the MacArthur Study Bible is an ideal gift for any student of Scripture, from pastors to new believers. To maximize your time in God's Word and to find answers to your spiritual questions, order a copy of the MacArthur Study Bible today. You can purchase the MacArthur Study Bible available in the New King James, New American Standard, and English Standard versions by calling 800-55-GRACE, or you can shop online at gty.org. With detailed introductions to each book and dozens of maps and charts and 25,000 footnotes, the MacArthur Study Bible has all the tools you need to understand Scripture and grow spiritually. 
Again, to order, call 855-GRACE or visit gty.org. And while you're online, check out the thousands of free resources we offer. You can download more than 3,600 sermons from John's 55 years of pulpit ministry, free of charge in MP3 and transcript format. You can also read helpful articles on issues that affect your life and church at the Grace to You blog. And you can keep up to date with the year-long Bible reading plan of the MacArthur Daily Bible. And all of that and much more is free at gty.org. Now for John MacArthur, I'm Phil Johnson. Remember to watch Grace to You television Sunday on DirecTV Channel 378. Then be here Monday when John launches an important series called How to Live in a Dying World. It's another 30 minutes of unleashing God's truth one verse at a time on Grace to You. Grace to You.